All right, if you have your Bibles, open to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Uh, we've been in this study in the book of Ecclesiastes for a little while now, and uh, we're going to wrap it up today. And uh, I kind of hate to see it go. I think there's been a lot of beneficial information in this book that we can uh, take to heart and, and apply to our lives today. But uh, we got into chapter 12 a little bit the last time we, we, we talked two weeks ago. And uh, we want to pick up in uh, verse 6 today. But just uh, since it's been a week in between, let me read to you the first five verses to catch us back up. It says, Remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say... I have no pleasure in them. While the sun or the light or the moon or the stars be not darkened nor the clouds return after the rain, in the days when the keepers of the house shall tremble and the strong men shall bow themselves and the grinders cease because they are few and those that look out the windows be darkened and the doors shall be shut in streets, in the streets when the sound of the grinding is low and he shall rise up at the voice of the bird and all the daughters of music shall be brought low. Also when they shall be afraid of that which is high and fear shall be in the way and the almond tree shall flourish and the grasshopper shall be broken and desire shall fail because man goeth to his long home and the mourners go to the street, go about the streets. Now we talked about this and we talked about the fact that the, all that description, especially that poetic description in verses um, two through five, <coughs> um, Solomon was giving us a description of what takes place as old age comes on. And he works his way through that description. He comes down to the end of verse five and he says, because man goeth to his long home, man goeth to the grave, and the mourners about the streets. And so he's talking about uh, age and he's talking about death. And remember that, that this has been a frustration of Solomon's throughout the entire book. Throughout the entire book, he keeps coming back to this issue of death because he felt like with his power, with his position, with his prestige, he should be able to have some escape from this and not have to deal with it like everybody else does. But in the end, you remember back in several passages, he talked about, you know, basically death comes on all men. It doesn't matter rich, poor, which side of the tracks you grow on, whatever you grew up on, you know, it, death comes to all men. And, and it's a frustration for him, and he goes back to that. And then we come into verse 6, and this is point number one today, a plea to remember God, a plea to remember God. And notice what he says, is he says, Or ever the silver cord be loosed, or the golden bowl be broken, or the pitcher be broken at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern. Now, what he's doing in this passage is, is, is Solomon's pleading for us to remember God. Remember, the whole passage starts out with, remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth. The, he, is, he is pleading for us to remember God at a younger age when we're younger. And, and remember, Solomon probably didn't learn this lesson himself, but as he's wrapping up this book, as he's come along in his life, he, he, he's reckoning, and when he gets to the end, he's going to give us the conclusion of all that has gone on in the book of Ecclesiastes. He's going to wrap it all up with some very good, sound advice, even though throughout the book, at times, his advice was not sound. But he says, remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth. And, but he's talking about age here, and, and, but you notice the terminology he lists he says, the silver cord be broken or the uh, or be loosed or the golden bowl be broken. You notice the terminology he uses, silver and gold, things that have what? Value. Things that have value. And, and, and I, I, I don't think we're reading into this passage to think of the fact that Solomon is pointing out that life has value. 
Now remember, he has been frustrated throughout the book, right? Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And over and over and over in the book, we get this idea of things coming up empty, things coming up without value, without satisfaction. And, and now he begins to describe the ending of life, and that's what he's going to be. We're going to see that he's actually talking in some physical terms here, but he's using illustration to get to those terms. We'll deal with that in a minute. But he's basically saying that life has value. Listen, folks, your life has value. Every single person in this room was created in the image of God. God breathed into us the breath of life, and we are a living being, and we have value. It doesn't matter how weak we are at this point of our life. It doesn't matter how beaten down we are at this point of our life. It doesn't matter how discouraged we are at this point of our life. It doesn't matter how sin-wrecked our life is because of the way we've lived it. And I could go on and on, but regardless of all those things, life and people have value. And we need to understand that because we are created in the image of God. Job 33 and verse 4, he says, The Spirit of God hath made me, and the breath of the Almighty hath given me life. What a beautiful verse. What a beautiful verse. The Spirit of God hath made me. Listen, folks, we were created by God. And not just part of the rest of creation, though it's magnificent, but man was in a unique position. He is the only part of creation that was created after the image of God. He was the only part of creation that God breathed into man the, the breath of life, and man has a soul. That's the only part of creation that's like that. And we have value. 1 John 5.11 says, And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Listen, folks, we have life today, and our life has value. You know, we live in a society that does not believe in the value of life. You know, we live in a society where everything is thrown away. And with that, with all the other things in society that get thrown away, we see life get thrown away. How many, how many babies have been aborted in our nation? Life thrown away. How many people have reached near the end of their life only to have it taken away by somebody? How many people have been murdered along through the years? Life taken away. Listen, folks, life has value. And as believers, we should value all human life. And that includes, folks, the lives of people who choose to live their life in a way that we wouldn't deem appropriate. Their life still has value. And our job is to reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they can maybe see the error of their way and come to the Lord. But all life has value. And Solomon has spent this book talking about vanity and emptiness. And then he gets down near the end here and encouraging us to remember our creator. And then he gives this description. But, but as you read through this description, it's interesting because... In that verse, in verse 6, we get a description of the actual human physical body and the things that help bring it life. 
And I did not realize this until I started studying this passage and started looking at several commentators and, and, draw, and drawing the conclusions that they drew from this. And it's very, very interesting description. So he, he starts out, he talks about the silver cord. Well, the silver cord is the spinal cord and the fluid within it. In ancient times, the fluid inside the spinal cord was described as a silver cord. And so he says, remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth, or ever the silver cord be loose, the spinal cord be broken, which brings on death. And so he's saying, remember your creator before this happens. Then he says, or the golden bowl be broken. He's referring to the skull. Before the skull would be broken, another thing that would bring on death, he says, remember now thy creator in the days of youth. Or the pitcher be broken at the fountain. And the pitcher and the fountain, that's the, the idea of the blood flowing into and out of the heart. The, the, the heart would be the pitcher and the, and the blood flowing into and out of it. And, and then, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and, and that actually refers to the aorta, which receives the blood from the, from the cistern or the left ventricle of the heart. And so it's so interesting that Solomon describes the ending of life in these ways, ways that would have brought death to people back in Bible times. By, by one of those ways would be a cause of death, and he describes death in those ways. But it's very interesting because the circulation of the blood was deemed a modern discovery in 1616. But yet Solomon, in his wisdom, understood how the human body works. He understood that there are things in the body that bring death to the body if they're disrupted or destroyed. And it's just such an interesting uh, thought here as he talks about these things. So he, he leads in this whole part of this passage, verses 1 to 6, with remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth. But then he brings it down to verse 6 where he makes this description. And then he says this, after these things would happen, because that's what he's talking about. He's saying, he's saying you know, or ever the silver coal would be loose, the golden bowl would be broken, the pitcher would be broken at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern. Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit shall return unto God who gave it. Isn't it interesting? Solomon takes us all the way back to creation when God formed man, how? Out of the dust of the earth. And he says, going through this whole thing, this whole process, this aging process, this death process, he says, he says at the end of all that, the dust returns to the earth. But notice what he says. And the Spirit shall return unto God who gave it. Isn't that interesting? Now, we understand that we have a soul. And we understand that, you know, when this body, you know, when I die someday, you know, my family's either going to put me in the ground or they're going to incinerate me and I'm going to be ashes anyway. But either way, this body's gone, folks. It's done. It's over. And, and, and because of my body, I could say thank the Lord for that. <laughs> because all, all the pain, the agony, all the, you know, it's all going to be gone. But, uh, but, you know, it's gone. But the soul is not gone. The soul is not gone. And, and, and I just love because Solomon has spent an entire book basically never focusing on God or eternity. I mean, he has avoided that subject almost through the entire book. And then he comes down to verse 7 and says, and the Spirit shall return unto God, but not just the Spirit returning to God, but it's going to return unto God who gave it. 
the God who created it, the God who breathed the breath of life into it. The Spirit's going back to him. And it, I, I'm just like, man, Solomon, what a revelation. Because you've spent an entire book not focused on that eternity, not focused on God, and now here we come full circle, and now when he, the realization of death comes in, he says the Spirit shall return to God who gave it. And that's what Job 33, we just read a few minutes ago, told us. The Spirit of God made me, and the breath of the Almighty hath given me life. These verses are just another form of proof or evidence for the fact that God created man. Listen, folks, we are not the result of some accidental explosion in the, in the space somewhere. We're not. We are not the result of some creature evolving over, quote-unquote, millions of years, and eventually I got man walking around on the face of the earth. Our body is way too intricate for that. This is a verse that helps to demonstrate that we were a created being, created by God, and he breathed into us the breath of life. Praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord for that. And, and these verses are just another demonstration of it. <laughs> but then we get to verse 8, and we see a familiar theme. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, all is vanity. So he started the book with that. Remember one of the very first verses in Ecclesiastes. was That's a direct quote of it. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And he kind of goes back to that. Listen, old age is inevitable. Death is inevitable. And Solomon is concluding these thoughts the same way he started them, thinking that life is vanity. Now listen, we just discussed the fact that human life has value. Man has value. But Solomon is correct to a point here. Because life lived apart from God, the way Solomon was living it, is vanity. It is vanity. It's empty. Listen, folks, if you're, if you're a, a Christian today and you live your life with no view of God, with no view of eternity, with no eternal focus, with none of that, your life is going to be empty. It's going to be vain. Why? Because we were created to have a relationship with God. What was God to Adam and Eve in the garden? There was an intimate relationship with them, right? They walked together in the garden. Right? And that's how life was intended to be. We are intended to have a relationship with God. And when we live our life apart from that, when we live our life separated from that, when we live our life not wanting any part of that, then we are going to have an empty life. It's going to be vain. It's not going to be a satisfied life. Because, folks, the things of this world aren't going to bring the satisfaction that Jesus Christ can bring. Listen, you can have all the money in the world. You're not taking it with you when you go. You can have the nicest house in the world. It's not going with you when you go. You can have the best 401k in the world. It's not going with you when you go. But Jesus Christ is going to be there for all of eternity. And that's the point here. Solomon has, has missed it so often throughout this. And as, he, as he's nearing the end of the book, <coughs> I, I, I really believe he's beginning to see the struggles that he's been struggling with, because as, as we move in a little further uh, into this chapter, these last few verses of this chapter, we're going to get some very smart, intelligent um, 
challenge to us about how we ought to live. And so let's continue on. Let's look at verse 9. And this is, this is uh, um, point number one was a, plan, uh, a plea to remember God. Point number two was just verse 8 there, the vanity of death. And now we're at point number three, marching towards true wisdom. Marching towards true wisdom. Despite what Solomon had concluded to this point, Solomon still had wisdom from God. And because of that, he is going to share some of that, that wisdom. And notice what he says in verse 9. It's interesting. He says, And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yea, he gave good heed and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find out acceptable words, and that which was written was upright, even words of truth. The words of the wise are as goads and as nails fastened by the masters of assemblies, which are given from one shepherd. And further by these, uh, my son, be admonished of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Now, what does he do? He gives us this whole laundry list there of why he is trying to still impart wisdom and how he's going to go about it. That's what he's doing. Basically, those verses describe to us how he is seeking and how wisdom should be imparted to people. And he said, first of all, that he should teach the people knowledge. Knowledge. Where does knowledge begin? The fear of the Lord. <laughs> That's where knowledge begins. The scripture is very clear about that. And so he acknowledges that he should teach the people knowledge. He said he should seek to find acceptable words. Listen, folks, as, when you try to teach somebody about God, you, you can beat them over the head so hard that you completely turn them off to God. Now, listen, you, we don't just not call sin, sin. That's not how we go about it either. But, but we need to speak. When we're sharing about the Lord, we need to share it in such a way that we don't turn people off from the second we open our mouth. Because that can happen. And people do that. And uh, there are people that don't attend church today because somebody has berated them to the point that they just don't want to hear it anymore. And so they shut it out. And that's a shame because it doesn't need to be that way. Matter of fact, if you, if, if you, if you look at, at, at script, Jesus Christ, our example, how did he deal with sinners? He was gracious. Now, he called out their sin, but he was gracious. The only group he was harsh with was who? The Pharisees. Because they were supposed to be the religious leaders, and they weren't. And so he was harsh with them. But you look at all the other people that he dealt with. The woman taken in adultery. You know, the lady that had the five husbands at the well. You know, you look at the, how did he deal with it? He was gracious to them. He was gracious. Did he, did he ignore their sin? No, he didn't. He called it out pretty clearly. And, but he was gracious. And folks, we need to, we need to be able to, as we, as we seek to teach people about the Lord, we need to be able to, to find a way to do it with acceptable words. But not just acceptable words. Notice number three, he should seek to bring forth that which is upright, words of truth. Now, that's where we get the other side of it. See, we can be so loving in our words that we don't speak the truth. And that's a problem as well. Because if you don't tell people there is one way to heaven, and that's through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, if you don't tell people that, you've not shared with them the truth. So you can talk to them kind all day long, but if you don't give them the truth, they're not going to get saved. 
And so, so Solomon's giving us examples of how somebody should be taught. And he's saying, listen, we, you need to teach them with, with acceptable words, kind, gracious words, but speak the truth. You still got to speak the truth. And folks, as we've been looking at it in our study last week on Wednesday night, our biblical worldview study, truth is something that is so fleeting right now because people don't speak the truth. Listen, I, 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 when I watch the news, and I, it doesn't matter which side of the aisle, but when I watch the news, I read stuff that people say all the time that I, I know is a flat-out lie. For anybody to get up there and say the economy is doing well right now, that's just a flat-out lie. I don't care which side of the aisle you're on. If you tell me the economy is doing well, my grocery bill argues that point. I don't be, have to be a rocket scientist. I don't have to be a politician. I know the economy is not doing well. So to tell me it is doing well is a lie. And yet that's the kind of stuff we hear all the time from both sides of the aisle, folks. People just telling lies to make themselves look better. Why? Because we don't have absolute truth anymore. And we've learned over the years, have we not, that there are people complicit in keeping the truth from us. The media is one of the largest ones that often bury the truth that they don't want to be true. And we know that for a fact. Watch the news. Every day, stuff comes out that the media tried to bury. Every day. Just read, I just read something this morning. I, I just got on the news real quick this morning. No, maybe it came on an email. I think it was on an email. It was talking about how, how the military has now acknowledged that um, the, the COVID vaccine uh, did so, cause some disease among, among soldiers and stuff that they didn't expect it was going to cause. And now, son, oh, revelation. You know, it's come out. Well, what did the media do for three years? Try to bury that stuff, you know? And now the truth is coming out. It's just, it's interesting at just how this all, all this stuff works. But the fact is, we need to tell the truth. And then he says, you, you should drive the point home. That's what he talked about. He talked about well-driven nails. Well-driven nails. In other words, nails that are hammered in the way they're supposed to be. Now, a good nail has what? A good point and direction when it's nailed in. And he's saying the words that you speak, they should be well-driven. The point should be driven home. And then he says he should bring forth the words given by one shepherd, one master. That's what he's talking about. We have that one shepherd, don't we? And he should realize that good study is wearisome to the flesh, but still willing to pay the price. Listen, folks, I don't know about you, but, but for, I struggle reading. I am not a reader. I am not the kind of person that can sit down. I'm, I, my sister-in-law can go on vacation, and she'll read a 400-page book in a day. And I'm like, that would take me 10 years to read that book. I mean, literally, because I couldn't stand but a couple pages a day. It's all I could take. I am not a reader. So for me to read, it's wearisome. It's a struggle. Now, I know I have to do it. So I read my Bible, and I read commentaries, and I read other books, uh, you know, that I need to and study, but I don't read for fun because to me it is wearisome. I don't enjoy it. But you know what? In study, it's worth it. You want to learn about something, what do you got to do? You got to read about it. And so it's worth it in the end. You know, when I was taking my master's classes, 
one of, one of the assignments we had in, in one class, <laughs> just as part of the, all the other reading in that class, was to read the Bible from cover to cover, straight through. Well, I've read pretty much the whole Bible all, all throughout my life, but I've never read it cover to cover. And I'll tell you what, for somebody who doesn't like to read, that was tough. It was tough because at the end I had to sign a paper that said I have read every word of this Bible from cover to cover. I couldn't, I couldn't just skip paragraphs and skip verses and skip chapters. I mean, I, at least not in integrity I couldn't because I had to sign something that said I read every word. You know what? I read every word. And you know what? It was tough. But you know what? You learn when you do that. You learn. And so Solomon's point is, listen... Words need to be shared, and, and we need to study and things like that. And then he brings us to the end, and it's like, it's, like it's, it's so crazy. We have this whole book. We have this whole book, and he summarizes it in two verses, really one being the key point of the whole book, and that is verse 13. So after all that Solomon has said and done, after all the times he's used the word vanity, vanity of vanities, emptiness, whatever, after all that, he comes to this, point number four, the final conclusion. And notice what he says. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Phillips, in his commentary, says this. He says, the whole matter has to ultimately return to God because the whole matter began with God. <laughs> that's a pretty good quote. The whole matter has to return to God because that's where it all started. And so Solomon says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. And then he sums it up in six words. Six words to sum up the conclusion of his entire lifetime of looking for fulfillment. He sums it up in six words. Fear God and keep his commandments. Now that's amazing, folks. To sum up an entire life of searching for fulfillment that was never found. And he comes to the end and he says, I've got the conclusion of the whole matter. I've got the conclusion, the whole thing can be summed up here. Fear God and keep his commandments. It's amazing. It's amazing. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10 and starting in verse 12, it says this. It says, and now Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee? That's interesting, isn't it? The writer says, what does, what does God require of you? Notice what the answer is. But to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command thee this day. For what? For thy good. For thy good. Solomon says, listen, I've got the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. Why? For our own good. For our own good. That's why. Fear God. Proverbs 14, 27. The fear of the Lord is what? It's a fountain of life. What a great verse. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. To depart from the snares of death is the second half of that verse. Proverbs 19, 23. The fear of the Lord tendeth to life, and he that hath it shall abide. Oh, look at this interesting word at the end of that verse. He that hath it shall abide satisfied. 
What was Solomon looking for through the entire book of Ecclesiastes? Chapter 1-1 all the way to 12-13, he was looking for a satisfying life. And how is it found? Proverbs tells us it's found in the fear of the Lord. By fearing God. Why? Because Kidner tells us this. He says, fear God is a call that puts us in our place and all other fears, hopes, and admirations in their place. See, folks, when we truly fear God as he should be feared, when we truly understand who he really is, it puts everything else in our life in its place. Because then we recognize who we really are. And we recognize that God is here and we are not. And that puts a lot of things in its place. When I understand how the hierarchy works and I understand what God's position is and what my position is, that takes care of a lot of issues in my life. Right? Keeps me from my life being filled up with pride, right? Because God's here and I'm way down here somewhere. <laughs> it's hard to be proud when you're way down here somewhere where somebody else is way up here somewhere, right? right? It, it puts everything in perspective. And that's why the fear of the Lord is so important. We could spend, oh my goodness, we could spend a whole sermon after sermon just on the fear of the Lord. But the reason it's so important is because it puts everything into its proper perspective. When I fear God, when I have a reverential fear for God, when I understand that I worship and serve an awesome God, and I don't use that term loosely, we use it a lot loosely in our society, but we worship and serve an awesome God. When I recognize these facts and I recognize this, it puts everything else into perspective. And so the commandment is to fear God. And then the other part is to keep his commandments. Turn back with me to Leviticus. You go, man, we don't go to Leviticus very often. No, we don't. But let's go to Leviticus today just for a moment. Leviticus 26. Leviticus 26. And starting in verse 3, notice what it says. It says, if ye walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them, then I will give you rain in due season, and the land shall yield her increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. And your threshing shall reach out unto the vintage, and the vintage shall reach unto the sowing time, and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land safely. And I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will rid e evil beasts out of the land, neither shall the sword go through your land. And you shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. And five of you shall chase an hundred, and a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight. And your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. For I will have respect unto you, and make you fruitful, and multiply you, and establish my covenant with you. Wow! What a wonderful promise from God to the nation of Israel. But the same still holds true for us today. If we keep his commandments, what's he going to do? Our life is going to prosper. That's what he was telling the nation of Israel. All that talk about the crops and the, and the enemies and the wild beasts and all that stuff that he's taking care of. Basically what he was saying to the nation of Israel is, listen, if you keep my commandments, I'll take care of everything else. Isn't that what God does for us, folks? Children of Israel backed up against the Red Sea. Stand still in what? See the salvation of the Lord. Why? Because when you keep his commandments, he's going to help life prosper. Now, I'm not talking financially. I'm not talking a prosperity gospel here. Trust me. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the important things in life, spiritual life. 
talking about our life prospering. God promises us that he will provide for us. And then he closes the book with this thought. He says, for God shall bring every work into judgment. And so we stop right there. If we stop right there, we think, well, wait a minute. That's, that doesn't sound very positive. God's going to bring every work into judgment. But listen, folks, judgment doesn't have to be bad. And that's what it says in the second half of that verse. With every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. How does Solomon conclude his book? He says, listen, I've got the conclusion of the whole issue. Everything I've spent these chapters talking about can be summed up here. Fear God, keep his commandment, because God is the judge. And God can judge you. It can be good. And listen, if you live a life that God wants you to live, there, that's going to be good. But if not, then it can be a problem. And so Solomon has summed up this entire book with these thoughts. And listen, folks, they're so true to this day. What is your perspective of God? Do you, have, do you have God on the throne where he belongs in your life? Or are you trying to be equal with God? Because a lot of times that's what we want to do. God, I'm going to do it your way sometimes, and sometimes I'm going to do it my way, and, you know, it's all good, you know. No, that's not all good. <laughs> because the Bible is very clear to us. God's ways are not our ways. And our ways are not God's ways. Why? Because God thinks higher than we think. That's what the scripture tells us. And so we have to be careful, folks. Listen, we need to have a proper perspective of God. We need to fear God. And then, folks, we need to obey him. It's that simple. Talking about the commandments, we need to obey, we need to obey this book. Do what this book says. And if we do that, we're going to have God in his rightful place. We're going to have an obedience to him that one day he can say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Isn't that what we really want to do? I mean, when I go to heaven someday, I hope God can say, well done. Well done. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed. We come to the end of this, not just this message, but the end of this book. And I hope it's been an encouragement to you, uh, even though there's some themes in it that have been discouraging at times. But folks, we can learn from everything in this book. But the, but the key is, Solomon gets it right at the end. <laughs> No matter what he has said before, verses 13 and 14, he gets it right. What is the whole duty of man? The whole duty of man is to fear God and keep his commandments. As a matter of fact, it's interesting, if your Bible has italics in it, the word duty in there was not in the original manuscripts. Our, our translators added it in to try to give it some, uh, some better understanding. But if you take the word duty out, it really says, for this is the whole of man. The whole of man is what? Fear God and keep his commandments. That's what we need to do. And hopefully that's what we're doing in our life. Let's stand with our heads bowed and eyes closed. I don't know how the Lord spoke to you today, but the altar's open. If you need to do business with God, we'll wait just for a moment while Elizabeth plays. Yeah.